Due to harsh language and violent content, listener discretion is advised. The podcast which you are about to hear is an account of the horror suffered by a group of three adults, Stuart, Arnie, and Brock. Though they had experienced horror before, had they lived very, very long lives they could not have expected, nor would they have wished to see as much of the mad and the macabre as they were to see with this retrospective series. For them, a movie review podcast became a six-piece symphony of terror. The events of this viewing were to lead to one of the most bizarre podcasts in the annals of Internet history. The Texas Chainsaw Massacre Retrospective Series. Today we're discussing The Texas Chainsaw Massacre, The Beginning, starring Jordana Brewster, Taylor Handley, Dora Baird, Matthew Bomer, Arlie Ermey, and Andrew and Arlie Ermey. (laughs) (laughs) I thought it was funny you didn't cite Leatherface's real name. That's because nobody can say it. (laughs) Directed by Jonathan Liebesman, Lebo to his friends. I'm Arnie, co-host of Now Playing. Steward in L.A., And this is Brock, co-host of Now Playing. And here we are again at the end of a retrospective series. Only this time, the end is the beginning. I have a question to start us off. Okay. The version I saw of this, I believe, was the unrated version. Here's how you can tell. Did you see a scene early on in the movie where the bikers were accosting the Jeep and the biker chick puts the fingers like a V to her lips and flaps her tongue? No. Then you saw the rated version. I thought I was watching the unrated version because of the very first scene in this movie, which we'll talk about in a few minutes after we do this and that. In the last one, I watched the unrated version as well. But the difference there was really just a few cuts of gore here and there. Mm -hmm. But for this one, there's five minutes of different footage where this is more a director's cut than just an unrated version. Now, what that footage adds is questionable at best perhaps this is a movie that didn't need to be five minutes longer but it added things like the bikers tormenting them in the jeep a little bit earlier on to set up the bikers for later and things like that and i like you saw the cunnilingus cut and (laughs) it was even more than the last movie much heavier on gore on raw visceral violence much like alien versus predator requiem to Alien versus Predator, they wanted to really intensify and give fans what they thought they wanted. I'll give you an insight. I listened to the director and producer commentary for the beginning, and apparently during the making of the remake, Marcus Nispel set forth the rule that less is more. Well, when making the remake, Arlie Ermey went up to them and said, more is more. And so that's what they took as their motto. Why didn't he get a directing credit at this point? (laughs) She gets screenwriting, directing. I mean, man. Oh, you don't know the half of it. He did write most of this movie through ad libs. It's almost like when I hear this, they're all like, yeah, R. Lee came up with that. Yeah, R. Lee came up with that. Yeah, she didn't know R. Lee was going to grab her breast during that scene, but she was fine with it. Yes, he deserved a screenwriting credit for this film, for better or for worse. 
Interesting, because I happen to notice the screenwriter on this is Sheldon Turner, who's Oscar nominated. He wrote Up in the Air, of the George Clooney movie, which I really liked. Everyone had to start somewhere. I saw it through that vantage point, and I don't know, I saw an interesting movie. Well, looking him up quickly on Wikipedia, he also did the Adam Sandler The Longest Yard. That one's nothing to write home about either. Okay. Well... Perhaps we should start this with a plot summary. The film opens in August 1939, where a fat woman working at the Blair meatpacking plant featured in the first film gives birth right on the factory floor as her boss wouldn't let her have a bathroom break. The woman dies and from her body crawls a baby that we would come to know as Leatherface. The baby is thrown out with the packing plant's scraps, but who would suspect that Luda Mae Hewitt raiding the scraps for something to eat would find the baby and raise it as her own? During the opening credits, we get to see a scrapbook of sorts of Leatherface, the boy picked on in school, growing up to work in the same meatpacking plant where he was born, his deformities not hindering him in the workplace where he slaughters cattle, but all the while wearing a mask that I think he stole from WWF wrestler Mankind. Fast forward to 1969 and the meatpacking plant is closing, but Leatherface so loves cutting meat that he refuses to leave. He's forced to leave by the slaughterhouse's manager, and Thomas returns and kills the manager with a hammer, and then goes, that's a lovely chainsaw, and steals it. The real Sheriff Hoyt, not the one we met, played by R. Lee Ermey in the last film, goes to the Hewitt Plantation to get Charlie Hewitt, Leatherface's adoptive uncle, played by Arlie Ermey, so they can go arrest Leatherface. And to the surprise of no one in the audience, Charlie kills the sheriff and then assumes his identity and feeds the sheriff to his family as a solution to their starving in the deserted, poverty-stricken town. Meanwhile, two brothers, Eric and Dean, are preparing to go to Vietnam. Eric is going back for his second tour while his brother has been recently drafted. But Eric doesn't know that Dean actually plans to draft Dodge and run to Mexico. On a road trip, Eric and Dean, with their girlfriends Bailey and Chrissy, are accosted by a biker gang, and a female biker chases them, making them flip their jeep. The fake Sheriff Hoyt arrives at the scene of the accident, kills the biker, and arrests Aaron, Dean, and Bailey, though Chrissy, tossed from the car in the accident, escapes his notice. Chrissy hides in the wrecked car and is taken to the Hewitt Plantation when Monty, with two legs, brings out a tow truck to tow the vehicle. At the plantation, Hoyt gives the biker's body to Leatherface to butcher for meat, while Hoyt tortures the two boys. Eric and Dean escaped, but are again captured when they try to rescue Bailey. Chrissy witnesses this and runs back to town to get another biker, and she and the biker return to the plantation. The biker shoots Monty in the knee, but is killed by Leatherface when Hoyt tells Leather that the biker is one of the kids who used to pick on him on the playground. Having gotten a taste for killing, Leatherface amputates both Monty's legs and then kills Eric and makes his first human mask from Eric's face. Chrissy and Bailey are taken to the dinner table and Bailey's throat is slit. Chrissy jumps through a window chased by Leatherface and Dean beats the shit out of Hoyt. Leatherface chases Chrissy to the slaughterhouse and Dean chases after to save Chrissy. Leatherface kills Dean. Chrissy escapes in a car. But in a cheat of all cheats, somehow she didn't notice that Leatherface and his chainsaw were in the back seat. He impales her on his rotating blade, and the car careens into a random person and deputy, killing them too. And Leatherface walks back home. So the movie opens up, and I'm really glad you mentioned Alien vs. Predator Requiem. Immediately, you know what kind of movie you're going to get when you have that birth on the floor of the meatpacking because you see her pee herself, then you see the blood, 
And then you see the puppet baby crawl out of her. I actually took that as amniotic fluid, not urine. Uh, and then they have amniotic fluid as well. Yeah, she broke her water. Yeah, she didn't pee. God forbid the movie go there. <laughs> oh, okay. I don't know if she knew she was pregnant. I mean, you hear about cases such as that. I mean, True. if she was uneducated and had been knocked up for unknown reasons, she might not have known it. She was a heavy girl anyway. It's definitely a metaphorical moment of born on the slaughterhouse floor. The mm-hmm. blood's like hot. You notice like smoke's coming out of the blood. The baby's magical. Like it's shooting <laughs> out. I'm surprised like it didn't have a chainsaw. Like they did everything. <laughs> the birth reminded me somewhat of Freddy's dream birth in the dream child sure because it had that weird puppet baby where this one was a bad makeup baby i guess but why did it have to be born in evil and born in the slaughterhouse the whole texas chainsaw massacre is based on ed gein and the whole thing about ed gein is he was the guy next door he was your next door neighbor who he seemed like such a nice guy i would have almost preferred leatherface to seem like such a nice guy and come from the stand-up type family that comes from world war ii era instead of this born in slaughter living in slaughter type thing it's certainly a less surprising choice and it's quite heavy-handed but you're right brock this is the movie we're watching and this is what it's going to be so Mm -hmm. There it is. It wasn't very surprising. I can tell you this. It was a relief to me as soon as they introduced the Comely brothers and girlfriends because I thought I was going to have to watch 90 minutes of a child with deformities, like beat up his childhood enemies. I really thought we were going to follow Leatherface as a main character. And here, Leatherface is just as important in this one as he has been in just about every other movie. He's the background ghoul, but he is not the central attraction. Well, what I would say is this movie just exists for the sake of answering questions I never thought to ask. I didn't care where Leatherface was born. I didn't care how Hoyt became sheriff. I didn't care how Monty lost his legs. I was just good with knowing that these are some fucked up people. I didn't need their origin story. And what's told to me is told in a stupefying way. A stupefying way? How do you mean? What do you mean? I couldn't believe that this is what they came up with. This is the best they could do. I actually thought this one was okay. So I guess we're going to have a difference of opinion. I think if you like the last one, there's not that much dip in quality other than they've obviously accented the gore. What I appreciated about this movie was that they finally returned to the satirical roots of the first movie. And that is much needed. Up until this point, all of this violence has been pretty much for naught, except for the first movie. And here, they actually have satirical targets and hit them pretty well. I enjoyed it as comedy. I completely disagree that this movie was smart enough to have satire. You're going to call out a few things, and I'm going to tell you Arlie Ermey ad-libbed them and that it was not the filmmaker's intent. Well, Arnie, whether something is intended or not, once it exists on screen, it can be interpreted in whichever way. So what they intended, I mean, monkeys can type on a typewriter, but if Shakespeare pops out... It's Shakespeare. This is not Shakespeare, Stuart. <laughs> no, no, it's not. It's a B-movie to a series that really should have stopped after the first one. But I will argue it's the third best one in the series. By default, maybe. But this is not anywhere near as clever or well done as the last one we watched at all. We just watched them do something that returned to a little bit of subtlety and returned to tension and having characters you care about. 
and this movie throws that completely away for shock and gore and violence for no reason. And Arnie's right. You're getting background information you didn't need. It goes beyond that. They start this movie with the lady in the slaughterhouse, and then they go through all these newspaper clippings and everything. They're fast-forwarding to five years before the first movie happened. I'm like, this is called The Beginning. They're showing me his entire life in news clippings. What are they going to show me now? This is not the beginning of anything. Well, it is the beginning of their cannibalistic ways. And I'm glad for that. I did not want to see Leatherface get a pimple. (laughs) Talk about something I didn't want to see. It was that. I did not want to spend time with Leatherface realizing that he wanted to kill people and wear their flesh. The whole cannibal angle was taken out of the first movie. At this point, when I'm watching this movie, and I'm seeing all these newspaper clippings fly by, and they go to 1969, I'm like, what on earth are they going to show me? And what they did show me as the beginning of this family and how they got to the point where they were at the beginning of the last movie... I don't care about that. It should be said, this is all part of a very big trend of the last five or six years is when they reboot these things to go back to the origins. You can want to see it done really well. Casino Royale, Batman Begins. They take methodical, thoughtful approach to every detail about how these iconic, sometimes campy characters could have a grounded reality. Well, we also have that with the remake of Halloween. But one of the things that the remake of Halloween, Batman Begins, and Casino Royale all have in common is they are the reboot film. This is the sequel to the reboot film. That makes it a little bit unique in that regard. So we see Leatherface all grown up and the closing of the plant, and he won't leave. And the manager actually sends a flunky down. And you see Leatherface is this really big guy, and he's hulking over him. And all I could think about was the remake of Halloween, which admittedly came out later, but I'm just saying there's some parallels here, in that Leatherface doesn't speak, and it reminded me of when Danny Trejo was calling Michael Myers Mikey in the insane asylum, and he was just wearing that cheap mask and standing there intimidating. The scene screamed Halloween to me. Halloween didn't come out for another year. Correct. So really, Rob Zombie should be sued. I think is what we're saying. <laughs> they could sue him and win for the plagiarism that he's done off these two Texas Chainsaw Massacre movies. Even though probably in public he would say that he hated them. If he even saw them. At this point, this movie came out in October of 6. His film came out in August of 7. It's hard-pressed to say he saw the opening butcher scene in this movie and decided to steal from it. It's just, they're both big hulking guys. It's just an unoriginal concept, I guess. I, as you recall, liked the remake of Halloween. Leatherface, he's perhaps the singular least interesting of the killers, because Michael Myers has this whole Freudian thing with his sister and his mother and all of the psychosexual killer tension, right? And with, even Jason has the mommy issues, Leatherface is nothing. And so when Rob Zombie went back to do Michael Myers, I found that all to be very interesting. I liked seeing that. I even liked seeing the hulking killer scenes in the Insane Asylum, which I feel like this butcher scene reminds me of. But with Leatherface, I just don't feel like there's any motivation or anything there. He's just 
a dumb killer with no motivation. You're talking about in these reboots. I want to make clear. No, I mean in all of them. I've illustrated at least four times now what he meant and what he stood for as part of a family unit in the original. Yes, you've illustrated your opinion of what he stood for in the original. Well, you've never disputed it. You're saying he doesn't mean that to you. I'm saying I'm fine with it. That was a part of a family thing. Here, we, like you said, we don't even see how he fits into the family. Bing, 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 bing. Thank you. Yes, exactly. That is a problem with these reboots. They did not create a cohesive family unit. In the last one, it was not a detriment to the movie. Here, they're trying to base the whole movie on that family relationship. It is a stronger family unit when we see them eating human flesh for the first time. I don't think that Leatherface is as interesting. He's not interesting as a standalone villain, is what you're saying, and I agree with you. Because he doesn't have bloodthirstiness in his heart. He is not there to kill people. I don't feel like he's the icon that people want him to be or have tried to make him. Let's look at why I think they went back a step. When they left the last movie, the sheriff, who I think Brock and I at least agreed was the star of the last film, was dead. And Leatherface, who we all agreed was the muscle of the last film, lost an arm and was fairly incapacitated. So rather than seeing one-armed Leatherface and no-legged Mahdi going around and kill people, they had to make a prequel because that's the only way we can bring back our most despicable characters in full killing mode. Well, you also could have put the chainsaw on his hand like Ash. Yeah, no, there's lots of ways to play that because I don't think this will be the last entry in the series. It's the last in this incarnation of the series. Yes, with the people that were involved, particularly Ermi. Leatherface may well be back in lipstick and a dress next time we see him. Played by RuPaul. <laughs> that would be awesome. <laughs> I would see that, actually. <laughs> Who wouldn't? <laughs> Green light. <laughs> <laughs> so I think that by having these killers back, they said, okay, we have to go before the last one. I said in the last one, and I thought when I was going in to see this one, we'd see the story of the first hitchhiker who blew her brains out. And that, I think, might have been a stronger choice than where did Leatherface get the inspiration to first wear human skin? I disagree with you. Nobody cares about that blonde chick on the road. They had to prune the motivations. They had to explain why the guy was in the wheelchair. Did they? Were you dying for this? I didn't need another movie. I think I've already gone on record saying I didn't need another movie after part one. But... Given the fact that the money that the last one made and they're going forward with it, I don't think this is a bad choice. And I also think that they've returned it to the comedy and that I appreciate the satire. That's the second time you've mentioned satire. Where is the satire? This is a knock on Bush, and there's no other way around it. It's Texas. It's about a family that's in control, praying, killing soldiers, eating their flesh, wearing a suit of authority that doesn't belong to them, just like the flight suit Bush said when he declared war was over. It's all a knock on Bush. It is political satire, and it's pretty funny when you look at it that way. You have to be politically aligned with it, but I appreciated it. Wow, I do not think this is Leatherface 911. I think you're projecting. Sheldon Turner's a smart man. He didn't just write a dumb horror movie. Well, admittedly, he was smart enough to distance himself from this turkey and not do a commentary. But when I heard the director and the two producers talk, it was all about horror and gore and pleasing Fangoria fans and not about let's make a satire of our current government. But that's what they ended up making, whether they realized it or not. I mean, the fact that it's 
about soldiers going to war and the fact that they're being eaten by cannibals that are Christian. You can't tell me that somebody didn't have their tongue in their cheek when they were doing it. The whole way that he gets his sheriff's suit is so much like the knock that Bush took by putting on that flight suit when he never earned it and being in the position of authority. There's cleverness here. I'm not going to say this is a brilliant satire or that I need Leatherface to tell me my political views, but we are watching a B-movie sequel to a B-movie, and I'd rather have it this way than, like, Next Generation or the third one, or even the second one, which tried to be funny and was not. I didn't catch any of that while I was watching the movie, but perhaps I just didn't care. I'm not going to argue that you need to go back and look at it. Oh, well, you couldn't make me. (laughs) (laughs) I do think it's there. And I think if you approach this movie with that in the mindset, you could enjoy it. I don't think you could enjoy this as a horror movie. It's not scary in the slightest. And it is pretty crass. But as a comedy, a satire, yeah, give it a pass. I think that both the remake and its sequel are conservative old guard versus liberal young people. The Hewitts are an old conservative Southern family. It's very easy, though, for the current generation to always demonize the one before it. So I think that that may be more of what we're seeing is these movies, as we've said many times, are marketed to teenagers as teen rebellion against their old conservative folks, in this case, embodied by the sheriff and Luda May. Yes and no. I, I, you know what? I saw this much more, and particularly the last one, as sort of Hollywood snobbery. All right, how do we know who the good guys are? They spend their time in the gym, they're real pretty, and they're young. And how do we know the bad people are? Well, they're rural, and they're ugly, and they have bad hygiene. I mean, I feel like that last one represents what people in big cities think of people in rural communities. It's a little bit condescending. Here, I think they've re-shifted the satire so that it's very clearly, well, maybe not very clearly, you guys are telling me it's not very clearly, that it Mm -hmm. could be interpreted to be about a political target. And that's always much more fun to watch than, oh, let's make fun of commoners. I don't like that. All right, well, let's talk about our heroes. Eric, Dean, Bailey, and Chrissy. I hate them all, and I'm glad none live. (laughs) Well, none of them could live. That was also the problem with this movie, is that none of these kids could live or they couldn't have gotten to the point where they did for the next movie. So it kind of took a whole bunch of tension out of this movie. In fact, I could argue it took all the tension out of this movie, with the addition of the acting quality dropping about three notches with these kids, because I didn't care about are you serious? They're about as good as the last ones. They are no, no worse. No, no, They are not any worse than the last ones. They're about <laughs> exactly the same. They're pretty new kids that are playing 70s dress up. Well, here's my thing with them. It's not that I hated them as that I'm sitting there sharpening my knives. I hated the actors because I couldn't care about these characters at all. I've watched this movie twice, and twice I don't empathize with them. These people have just torture done to them throughout 90 minutes and i just don't care i never at any point feel bad for them i never think they're going to escape for the reasons brock said i'm not into it they're bland characters because we know they're gonna die but it's not as fun to see them die as like the bullies in friday the 13th nor is it as traumatizing to see them die as the characters who i kind of liked from the last movie in this case it's just For generic people, I never could become interested in their story. Because we know they have to die because of what the movie is. 
their job is to get us invested in who they are. And because of the script, because of the director, because of their talent, I don't know what the reason was. Probably all three of those things and more, these characters did not fulfill that job. Now, I like Jordana Brewster fine. I don't think I have any problem with her. It's not a personal attack against any of these four actors. But they didn't get the job done as far as I'm concerned because I wasn't scared for them at all. I knew exactly what was going to happen to them. And how it happened to them, I didn't care for either. Top of all that, it's confusing on why they're together. For example, the younger brother who's going to ditch to Mexico, I thought the woman was a prostitute. I didn't realize that she was his real girlfriend because she looked so much older than he. And the way she was behaving with him seemed like she was a prostitute. Oh, and- no doubt. That's something that stuck out really bad is I don't care women's lib or not. In 1969, nobody's girlfriend is tying them up in bed and telling him most men like that. Yeah, I actually have in my notes, I guess they invented soft bondage. <laughs> yeah, that, that just would not play with any age group at that time. That man would look at her as a whore and talk to her as a whore, and he would not have her as his girlfriend. But he would love every minute of it. Well, he didn't, though. That's the thing is, he was sitting there because he was so distracted with what was also going on, which also added to the whole whore thing because maybe he was there for his first time. That's what I thought they were going with. I think they could have gone that way. I thought that would have been more interesting if he had taken his brother to get laid before they'd gotten off to enlist for Nam. Or or if he was gay. That would have been a good one, too. If he wasn't interested because he was gay. That would have been a nice way to go. Anything to make these characters distinct, which we don't have. You guys are really kind of ridiculous to me. Like, (laughs) those last ones were not incredible characters. They were all generic types. At least they were types. Who were these? I totally can understand this conflict. They're two brothers about to enlist. One doesn't want to go, and one is putting on a brave face and going to try to protect his brother when he's overseas. I get that. The chicks, whatever. I definitely agree with you on Bailey. I don't even the name Bailey. Like, again, this is a name that doesn't come into play for 20 to 30 more years. No one is naming their girl Bailey in 1950. It's just not happening. I'm sorry. They felt as much like siblings to me as Franklin and Sally. Look, if you're going to apply this level of scrutiny, it's the thing. I'm not sitting here with a microscope trying to find flaws in this movie. I think you are because this movie didn't hit your sweet spot. It didn't make the killing fun. And so you're against it. But these characterizations are no different in this movie than the last movie. I refuse that criticism. I'm going to go on my own on this one and say these characters are not anywhere as compelling. And this movie suffers right off the bat because we see they're going to up the gore factor immediately. And then we get this boring scene with them in the swimming pool talking about the names of their kids. And the other kid, with or without a prostitute, we can't figure out if she's a prostitute or not. So these are the core characters we're going to have to spend this movie with. And they have no way to connect me, the audience, to them. And their plot about going to Vietnam, for all intents and purposes, absolutely should connect to us, the audience. And somehow, they just don't. It's bland. It's boring. It's rote. And those are things you don't want in a horror movie. Or a horror movie needs to entertain you because all it has. If it's a boring horror movie, it's one of the worst things in the world. How many boring horror movies have we seen already in all these retrospective series? And you know immediately. I, I would argue it's more boring kids on holiday smuggling drugs than kids about to go to war. Kids I agree going with to you. War is a more intense 
dramatic scenario. But it wasn't played for drama. It didn't have the drama there. It was too glossed over. It never felt like they were really going to war. These are kids that know about Nam from Rambo. I mean, he's coming out of the pool with the headband, and I'm just like, okay, apocalypse that's now. the apocalypse now. Yeah, that's not Nam. And they, missed that's... The, and they missed a golden opportunity at the end of the movie to repeat that when she's in the slaughterhouse. I'm like, why didn't she do that then? She wasn't playing soldier. She didn't go to Nam. This is, again, the 60s, the 70s light. This is how we remember it as people that didn't grow up in the era. Here's the thing. In the last movie we watched, I really felt... Like, those five in the van were our main characters, and we were watching them one by one get whittled down. In this film, our main characters are the sheriff and Leatherface and the family, and seeing how they get there, and these are cattle to the slaughter. And they are given that much depth. I really feel like because of just the dialogue they're given, the situations they're given, or the way it's played, or just some combination of all of them, nothing makes me connect with these. And I never feel like these characters are the ones I'm following a through line for in this movie. And Stuart, you're absolutely right. The dramatic implications of these two kids going to Nam should have much more weight than a bunch of kids going out to Mexico to smuggle pop back into America. The problem is... The movie doesn't succeed doing it. It's just a plot point, and it doesn't work because they don't make it compelling. It's also, if you go with my perception of the movie, a way of introducing the idea of kids going to war, which is important for the satire, if for not the drama. Now, they get accosted by this female biker. Did she look like any biker you've ever seen in your life? I looked this girl up. She's a pussycat doll. All I could think of was... She's far too thin and far too pretty to be spending too much time on that bike with a hardcore 60s biker gang. But that other guy looked like he just had a couple days growth in a bandana. Yeah, I, he felt like a roadie for poison. If you're going to attack the people for not looking, period, I think that's a slam you could run against every movie since the first one. Because they actually were shooting it in the period. They've never gotten the period details to feel authentic to me. I'm not saying she didn't feel period. I'm saying she didn't feel like a tough biker. She felt like a supermodel on a bike. At no point did I feel like these kids should be intimidated and run from this biker. There were four of them, one of her, and you could break her over your knee. Mm, I, she did I, have I the gun. Her attacking the Jeep, to me, seemed completely random and kind of out of place. And it seemed like a way to get them into the shitstorm, whereas the last movie had the suicide in the van, which felt much more organic. This one literally came out of nowhere and tried to hold them up for the money. You know, 1969, Alta Mountain had just happened. Hell's Angels had been hired as security for the Stones, and it had gone, gone really bad. And the perception was it was the good kids against the bikers. That was a conflict that was going on. I don't feel like it's totally out of left field, but is it authentically portrayed? No, it's not. Let me combat that with all they had to do was set up more of when the kids saw the bikers earlier in the movie, like five minutes I, earlier. I think they did. I think that got cut from the version you saw. However, in the director's cut, yeah, we got to see them earlier and set up a little bit more of it. Then it just becomes so random that they're driving the exact same place all the time and just keep running into each other. Regardless if they cut stuff out or not, it's still completely random that it's only one biker who's holding them up also. If it's trouble with the biker gang, why isn't there three or four or five of them? Why is there just one? Oh, I totally agree with you. I'm not going to argue that. That's okay. It's ridiculous. So, absolutely ridiculous. And the fact that all four kids walk away from that Jeep accident, excluding the one who got thrown from the Jeep, 
is also ridiculous. They could have had an extra kid die in the van to make it a little more realistic, too. I understand we're not going for realism here. They all got cuts and bruises from a horrible flipping Jeep accident. If I'm, I could be mistaken, but Jeeps back then didn't have hard tops. They had soft tops, right, or softer tops. It's hard to survive a Jeep flipping over that many times in an accident like that. But, you know, what do I know? I'm not an expert. Just I mean, to, one of them was hurt pretty bad. I mean, yes, yes, the girl was hurt pretty bad. The yeah. the may or may not be a whore girl was was hurt pretty bad. <laughs> one thing after another keeps happening that doesn't mesh in my brain as something that could realistically happen. And what makes the first movie and the last movie so powerful is that these things, in a sense, could really happen to people. No, it's not to be thought of as a realistic anything. But Nothing. I think you guys are underselling the fact that as a B picture, some of these scenes work. Like. Emery rolls up and blows her away, and now you got a new tension. I thought that scene worked. It worked as well as that great scene that you guys loved from the last one with the guy having to put the revolver in his mouth. I liked that he just blew her away. I liked that it upped the tension and said, there's a new sheriff in town. But <laughs> Well played. Right after that, the whole thing went downhill. It was a replay of the last one. Put the body in the car while I make sexual innuendos. I was starting to get a little bit off wondering about if the bus was going where I wanted to go, but I wasn't off the bus yet. Next stop, enter Monty with two Monty. legs. Yeah, he walks. That lets you know that you're going to learn something. Again, I didn't really need to know if he had polio or... <laughs> If he lost them in Nam or Korea, I guess, or if he had them in 1969, but this movie's going to tell me. Well, yeah, but I mean, that's the movie you're watching. I mean, if you're going to have that attitude, do we need to go have a prequel to this? The answer is no, but... If they are going to do that, they need to explain some of this. They don't need to tell me a story of the blonde and have it be exactly like what happened to every other teenager that's met these Rube family. I mean, they do need to tell us why. I guess my problem is, and Monty's a big part of this, I don't feel it was told well. I don't feel like there were any surprises here or that it was even told in a realistic fashion. Well, if realism your barometer, then no, this movie's going to fail you hard. But I like the way Monty's leg goes because when he finally loses it, the biker puts a bullet in one of them and you're like, huh, but he has both legs missing. Why would that be? And so you're still wondering to know why, even after that happens. They don't just give you one answer. It's a slow build. It builds throughout the course. I think they handled it better than you guys are giving it credit for. I disagree. I think it's as good as we're giving it credit for and not a lick better. I will say this. I did not like Leatherface in the last movie. I don't like him here either. I don't feel like they explain it any better than they did in the last movie, why he would wear human flesh or why he would be the way he is. Even the moment where the biker falls in the chainsaw and he's inspired to use it finally as a weapon, it really just felt half-assed. And I don't know. Leatherface is the least interesting thing about all Texas Chainsaw Massacre sequels. He is the dead weight of the series, and he never has worked for me since the first movie where I really liked the characterization. Wouldn't you guys think it would have worked better if when he put on Matt Bomer's face 
he was doing it to impress the girlfriend. Romantic Leatherface didn't work for me in part two. I don't think it would have worked for me here. But at least that would have made sense. Why does he do it? I guess, like Stuart says, you have to read into it. And he just wanted to be like everybody else. <laughs> if he wanted to be like anyone else, he wouldn't be a cannibalistic chainsaw-wielding maniac. That's not good enough. They dropped that ball. They also dropped the fact of him being a chainsaw-wielding maniac. I'm sitting here watching this movie, and there's the scene with the biker... And Arlie Ermy is trying to convince Leatherface to kill him by saying he's one of the kids who made fun of you on the playground. I'm sorry, you don't need to lie to Leatherface to get him to kill. He's Leatherface. He started off the movie by having that imposing presence, and later on, it's like he's lost and doesn't want to kill again when we've already seen him kill. It's a cowardly presentation. The idea that they want to make him sympathetic... It's hard. And they kind of tried to do that with Michael Myers. I know we compared him a little bit in the last one. But the same thing about, like, on one hand, he's supposed to be this inhuman demon. But on the other hand, we're supposed to understand the human reasons and emotions why he's doing what he's doing. It's either all or nothing. You can't fudge that. They didn't do this right. They did not give us anything right here. They picked up from the last movie. They went and ran with the star of the last movie. And unfortunately, the guy stole the movie last time. That doesn't mean you should make him the lead this time. What you should do is you should keep him in the supporting role and let the people unfold. And they failed on so many counts in telling this story because they already have a problem. We know the ending. They have to make us want to see how it unfolds, and they fail on every single level. Here's something else. I found in the last movie Arlie Ermey to be a completely intimidating and frightening presence. And part of that was the lighting, because there's that scene in the car in the last movie where he's making Morgan put the gun in his mouth, and he's lit so that he, he almost looks like he has no eyes. He looks like a, a mask himself. But here, first of all, most of this is going on in the day, so he lost his intimidating presence. And second of all, because I know Arlie Ermey ad-libbed most of his dialogue in both movies, I kind of got the feeling that Marcus Nispel was able to keep a rein on Ermey, whereas this director, whose previous credit was the Tooth Fairy renamed Darkness Falls, I think Lebo just let Ermey run wild, and it was to the detriment of this film. But also part of it is the script, because right away... One of them is injured in the car wreck. The two guys are strung up and tortured mercilessly for no purpose. And then we've got Chrissy, who's like running back to get a biker for help. But you never at any point feel like Chrissy's at all competent to help anybody. I didn't believe the character would keep going back. Remember when the biker went in and ditched her and she stood there watching him go in there and then he follows her? It felt false to me. Can you imagine Jordana Brewster having to kill her friend hanging from the ceiling? I can't. I can't imagine that scene. I didn't buy it when Justice Kabil did it either. I'm I did. Yeah, that's the difference, perhaps. That's, that's is that, the difference. Yeah, I feel like they're both about the same level of actress, and I enjoyed their performance on about the same level. So we talked briefly about the torture scene where Fake Hoyt is torturing the two boys. In my life, I have never walked out of a movie theater where I've paid for a ticket and just decided I want to leave. This is the closest I've come in my life to walking out was during this scene. And it's not because I was repulsed or offended. It's because I realized this just keeps going on and on and on, and I don't give a shit. Now you know how I feel about Texas Chainsaw 4 and 3. I just felt like I had nothing invested in this movie, and I cared so little about the outcome 
that I could just get up and leave right now and never know and be fine. I could think of four different times where I wanted to turn this movie off. But a half hour in, I realized for the first time, I got nothing here. And then I and then I kept on looking at the clock, waiting for this thing to be over. I didn't because my wife wanted to stay and see, thinking it might get better. It didn't. And I realized also I wasn't enjoying our Lee Ermey this time. He wasn't the fun malevolence of the last one, where it was so much of a joy to see him be evil. Here he was too jokey. And, and it's not that I'm also hating it. It's not that I'm thinking this is miserable. I just had so little investment and so little caring for anything that was going on that had i been at home the channel would have immediately been changed i think i've made my point that i saw a different movie than you guys did coming from my perspective the push-up scene all of that i mean the guy even says we have to stay the course to me it couldn't have telegraphed anymore that he was channeling george bush and that the idea of seeing the, the first family in the White House being a bunch of Texas cannibals who are eating soldiers, I appreciated it. I thought that it worked, and I thought it collect in that kind of B-movie satire level. If I didn't pick up on that reading, I might be as irritated as you guys are, because as a horror movie, as a drama, as suspense, it's got none of that. But I actually enjoyed Ermi more here than I did in the last movie. All right. So Chrissy gets captured and is taken to the dinner scene, which they were lacking the last time. So they put in here. What I got from the director and producer's commentary is that they didn't put cannibalism in this movie either. And Arlie Ermi ad-libbed that they were starving and decided to eat the sheriff. And they didn't even know he was going to do it until they had the dinner scene. Thank Wait a God. minute. Yeah, I know. It's a head scratcher. When he's torturing the soldier and brother, he mentions all about how when he was in Korea, yes. when he was a POW, the way they survived was mm-hmm. they made a decision on who dies, and that implies that they ate each other one by one until they all, the rest of them escaped. So you're telling me he ad-libbed all of that as well? That's what I'm taking from it. I mean, I understand he ad-libbed like 80% or more of his dialogue. So I guess they went back to the cannibal angle and it became the main plot of them. And it has to. I mean, that is essential. You have to understand that this is a family that's desperate, that has gone to desperate extremes. If you're going to identify with them at all, if the purpose of going back and seeing how they became who they are at all, you have to understand that they were forced into it. That's got to be that way. I didn't like Korea. I thought that was complete BS. I'm sure he made that up. It doesn't work at all. But I can believe it here. I can't believe it when we're at the dinner table and he says, look, we either leave our home or we eat. And I say we eat. I totally buy that. They kill Bailey and it it was just so random that Hoyt decided to kill Bailey at that moment. Uh, You know, the thing about that, I thought they were grooming her to be Henrietta, who we didn't talk about in the last podcast, but she lived with the obese lady in the trailer and was raising that orphan child as her own. Since we never saw how she came to be or who she was, and she seemed to have kind of lost her mind, and her haircut was even the same, I thought they were going there. So I was really surprised when they slit her throat. I didn't think she was going to die. And then, hey, I haven't seen this in a couple movies. Chrissy jumps through a window to escape (laughs) and is chased by Leatherface. At this point, it's its own running joke. It's like, well, of course. Ah, like we all like went, oh, of course. As soon as the glass broke, we can cross that off the list. And then we again see the chase through the slaughterhouse. Didn't we see this already last movie? Hey, they're running out of ideas. No doubt about it. 
So I guess they decide to rip off Apocalypse Now with Chrissy coming out of the vat of blood with a knife? No, no, no. no. That's the thing. They missed it because earlier in the movie, the kid came out of the water with a, with a knife in his mouth and all that. So when she's in the vat of blood, she didn't go underneath the water and submerge herself to hide. She was against the side of the thing and he pulls her out. So if she had gone under the water and popped up again as you know to mirror what her boyfriend did earlier in the movie, which is mirroring Apocalypse Now... It would have made more sense to me. The fact that they missed that moment again later in the movie blows my mind because he pulls her out of there, throws her on the ground. But Chrissy escapes and gets in the car and she's going to make it. If only she'd noticed the seven foot guy in the back seat. How did she not notice the guy got in the back seat? How did she not notice the guy was there when she got in the car? How did she not realize the guy caught up to her, got in the back seat and was keeping quiet from breathing? All right, you guys. Well, here's what's happened. Once you've turned on a movie, everything that you could laugh along with suddenly becomes poisonous. If you guys have been having a good time up to this point, you probably would have told me that it was awesome that she got chainsawed before she made it to the cops right at the end. But because you've turned on this movie, it suddenly this horrible cliched <laughs> stupid thing I, it's fine i mean it's they had to go this route and i'm not gonna defend it and say it was brilliant but it was ref- a refreshing twist i'm sorry Stuart, but you bitched in requiem how could the cop not see the alien right there but yet you're perfectly fine had the girl didn't notice leatherface at the chainsaw how many Friday the 13th movies have I sat through where Jason popped up where he physically could not have been? It's very different than Alien vs. Predator where they were trying to be a legitimate movie. This is a slasher movie. There's an illegitimacy that kind of comes with the territory. Stuart, I'm not going to disagree with you if I enjoyed the movie. I'm a, I have gone on the record many times in many of these podcasts. If I'm enjoying the movie, You guys like Friday the 13th 9. I mean, now you know how I feel. I will give concessions to, to a movie. I'm sitting here defending a movie, and you guys are going, this is the worst thing I ever saw. If I'm enjoying the movie, I'm more than willing to go with it or say, okay, they had to go there, but since that's the movie that they're telling us, we have to have that ending. They had to have a surprise ending at the end of this. Sure, of course they did. They had to kill Jordana Bruce at the end of this. Of course they did. The fact of the matter, he popped the back seat. They could have written... They could have written a way in which she got away but didn't tell the authorities or no one would believe her. She went insane. Hell, that's how the first movie ended. This movie we're watching with the gore and the violence in it, they completely had to kill her in this particular movie. The fact that he popped up like a jack-in-the-box in the back of that car was completely like a scream moment. But for this movie made little sense. He's not everywhere at all times. I watched this ending twice because I'm like, they cheated. There's no way he could be in that car. And I watched it twice, and yep, they cheated. There's no way he could have been in that car. Jason and Freddy movies, you buy that kind of thing because that's the kind of movie they're doing. This movie they're doing here is not that kind of horror movie. I hear that it was a problem for you. To me, having seen all these horror movies and series, it was just an ending. I can't call it great or plausible or anything. It was just the ending, and here we are. I will say this. I love the last shot. I thought it was beautiful. With him sneaking off down the dark road, you got to admit, that was iconic. I will say it's not iconic because I've never seen it referenced anywhere. The one thing about Iconics is it becomes an icon. It was a nice shot, but it was not iconic. No. Well, iconic in the sense that he was headed down a dark road. It was symbolizing, it was typifying a moment. He had become what he was going to be. I see. Well, I guess this only leaves. Brock, Stewart, do you recommend the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, the beginning? I think I've been very clear about this, haven't I? I do not recommend this movie. I found it boring, unoriginal, and that's saying a lot coming from this series. I didn't hate it 
as much as the other movies in this series, but just like number four, I would have turned it off if I could have. No, I do not recommend this movie at all. Stuart. No one is more surprised than me that I didn't hate this movie. I was hating this series. I did not like the second movie. I detested the third and fourth movies. I had turned around a bit on the fifth one, but I didn't think there was anywhere else to go. If you can see it my way, and probably only if you can see it my way, you will enjoy this movie as a grungy, anti-Bush satire. If that doesn't appeal to you politically or aesthetically, you probably hate it. And you have, there's a lot here to hate. But if you need to do another Texas Chainsaw Massacre and you weren't satisfied with the last one, I really didn't think it was that bad. I would say it's a small step down from the last one. It's still better than the Platinum Dues version of Friday the 13th or Freddy. And it's the third in the series, in my opinion. Recommend. It's funny we finally had this shoe on the other foot. I don't think this has ever happened before where you guys really did not like a movie and I gave it a pass. I do not recommend this movie. Stuart says a slight step down. I say a plunge off a cliff. It has nothing going for it. If you are a total gorehound, there's some good blood and some gross out moments. But if you like story and character and well done movies, be them horror or not horror, this is not something to watch. This one was almost the reason we didn't ever do Texas Chainsaw because I didn't want to watch this again. So... No, I don't recommend this movie. It's not despicable. It's just uninteresting. So Brock and Stuart, looking back on the oeuvre of Leatherface, what do you think? Was this journey worth it? The original Texas Chainsaw Massacre is required watching for horror fans. And I completely agree with that. Even if I did not watch this entire series, one day I would have watched the original Texas Chainsaw Massacre, much like I watched the original Friday the 13th, Nightmare on Elm Street, before I watched those series with you guys. But as a series as a whole, this is the least favorite series we've done of horror movies so far. This one peaked so early and then just unimpressed me throughout the whole time. Missed opportunity after missed opportunity. This whole series was a giant missed opportunity, and it's a shame. I was very disappointed overall. I didn't feel this was a series. The series has progress. You see it change. Jason went to space. Jason went to hell. Jason went places. He fought Freddy. Uh, New York. I, I, New York. You know, he saw a little bit of the world. Leatherface <laughs> never really got out of the kitchen. You know, he never, never really did anything different from the starting point to the ending point. Now, his character changed. And the family members came and went, and sometimes Grandpa was here and sometimes he wasn't. But by and large, the formula was pretty strict to the point where I almost felt like they were just rebooting it every time, remaking it every time, and that there really wasn't a series to tell. There were not continuing characters. What would have helped? I think if we had ever liked any of the protagonists, any of the victims, if a Jessica Beale came back, if a Sally came back, if there felt like there was a continuation of the victims, it might have felt like a series. But instead, it just felt like, oh, here are some more unlikable people that break down and get tormented by rednecks. The same idea again and again, sometimes to comedic effect, but they never really pushed the ball too much further than when it came out in the original. And so for that reason, I got to say no. You can skip the whole franchise, stop with the first one, and that's about it. Even though I gave a recommend to the last two, they're completely superfluous and are forgettable. Time will forget them. Texas Chainsaw Massacre is forever. The rest of the series, not so much. The first one's required viewing for horror scholars. 
But yeah, I am just shocked at the repetitiveness of this. Mm. Number two stood out. Yes. They went to Dallas, and number two was really weird when you now look at all six of these. And while I recommended number two, I'm not sure it stood out in necessarily a grand way. It was a a weak recommendation. Mm -hmm. But it just always seemed to be the same without even trying to do anything new. And perhaps it's because so many years passed again between all of these sequels. They felt like they didn't need to be inventive, whereas Friday the 13th was coming out every year and had to up the stakes time and time again. Here it's like, does anyone really remember what happened in 74? Let's just do that because people liked it. How amazing is it, the idea of someone wearing human skin and wielding a chainsaw? But he's not that guy. He is not that guy. And every attempt to make him that guy... Either they butched him up to the point that he was just anonymous or they camped him up and made him uh, transsexual. They just never knew how to play it. And I felt like it only worked in the first version. The mask is a wonderful thing. Great killers wear masks because you don't know what's behind it. So that's why he became the icon of the series. But, yeah, they never succeeded in making him stand alone and so if they ever do make another one and i know twisted pictures has inherited the series from platinum dunes i would recommend that that's where they start find a way to distance themselves from the idea that it is a family base it on ed gein and make it one guy acting alone that's where you start no doubt they'll make it in 3d as well but i kind of hope they don't i also would like to question the title the texas chainsaw massacre because all in all There aren't a lot of chainsaw deaths. With anything that happens, you know, the media grabs on the title, too. And if there was a massacre and there was a chainsaw, even if everybody wasn't killed with the chainsaw, the media may call it a chainsaw massacre and the such. I do agree we needed more chainsaw deaths, especially in part four when there were no chainsaw deaths. But... Overall, I was mostly happy with the amount of chainsaw deaths because you want it to be mixed up and chainsaws are loud so you can't have any stealth deaths with a chainsaw. It's a title that hints at way more carnage than it actually is presented, which is appropriate for the first movie where the violence is mostly implied. Mm-hmm. I like it for the first movie, but they could have dropped it. Much like Chucky, they stopped calling it Child's Play and started calling them Chucky movies. They could have centered it more around Leatherface. They tried with the third one, but they should have dropped the TCM entirely. Really, they did need to evolve this story. They needed to look at doing what they did with Jason. I mean, as tenuous as the chronology of Friday the 13th and even Nightmare on Elm Street was, the end of each movie led into the beginning of the next movie. And we kind of had that a little bit with Texas Chainsaw 1 and 2. But after 2, they just kept going back to the original movie and redoing it again and again. But if you'd followed Leatherface's evolution, if they'd started 3 with Leatherface crawling out of the wreckage of 2 with his family dead and having to go off on his own, you could have built something with that. If I never see another chainsaw again, it's too soon. Mm. Stuart, you mentioned child's play. You got Chucky on the brain, do you? Well, we've been living a parallel life with him. You have a horror mistress and her (laughs) name is Chucky? (laughs) (laughs) I do. And you can have him too. You can have my seed with Chucky. We have a separate podcast that is available for the special listener. How do you get to be a special listener? Brock? You donate $10 or more, and you can find that button at the bottom of our homepage at nowplayingpodcast.com. 
as a gift to you, the loyal listener, which allows us to buy better equipment, allows us to pay for our bandwidth, to keep our websites up, and also to help us go to the movies and just regular expenses like that. We will give you a thank you as a gift, a complete retrospective series of Child's Play. This is only available to those who donate $10 or more. And we want to be very clear. We are not selling any podcast. Now Playing Podcast is always free. It will be free every week on this feed. You're getting these now. This is a special gift. $2 an hour for a podcast. You pay a dollar for a three-minute song on iTunes. There's a good ratio here. Thank you to all you loyal listeners for helping us out. So we're able to continue to give you these great podcasts week in and week out here at Now Playing. Meanwhile, with the horror show, will continue. I know, Arnie, you're going to be wrapping up another horror franchise next week. Yeah, it's not a chainsaw. It's just a saw. Mm. <laughs> and puppets. You know, they're kind of the Chucky thing, too. They come together as Jacob Marjorie and I will finish our Saw retrospective series. Had we known last year that this was the last one, we would have waited a year on that series. But go back. You can download the first six Saw podcasts in our archives at nowplayingpodcast.com and join us next week as we do a weekend of release review of Saw 3D. And then after Saw, Brock, you, I, and Jacob will be headed to the jungle where they've got fun and games and Rambo. Yes, Rambo. We're going to tie on our bandanas, put on our big rocket launchers, and just pump it up as we go and shoot through all four of the Rambo movies in anticipation of absolutely nothing. We're just going to watch them. <laughs> <laughs> and we'll talk to you next week. So long. No, he, he's out there with a chainsaw. No, no, he had a chainsaw. He was chasing me with a chainsaw. Thank you for listening to the Texas Chainsaw Massacre retrospective series from Now Playing. It's what the public wants. Come back to NowPlayingPodcast.com each week as we cut into a new installment in this classic franchise. People may not remember what we say here tonight. They sure as shit gonna remember what we do. You can find other now playing retrospective series such as Halloween, A Nightmare on Elm Street, Saw, Terminator, Star Trek, and others at our website. Me and Bubba, my little brother, we listen to you every night. Go to nowplayingpodcast.com and click the archives link to find those series, as well as individual movie reviews such as Avatar and Inception. We got the means, we got the machine. And while at NowPlayingPodcast.com, be sure to join our forums where you can discuss the Texas Chainsaw Massacre films with other podcast listeners. First, I'm going to kill you. It ain't no fucking biggie. You can also follow Now Playing on Facebook and Twitter, where we post new episodes, and the Now Playing hosts post movie mini-reviews. Links to our social media pages are at NowPlayingPodcast.com. Welcome to my world. Support from listeners like you help keep Now Playing operating. If you enjoy Now Playing, please support the show. You can find a link to donate to the show using PayPal on our homepage, or you can buy Now Playing t-shirts, coffee mugs, mouse pads, and much more at the Now Playing Cafe Press Store. If you need anything, just tweet. <laughs> and remember, if you make a donation of $10 or more made by October 31st, 2010, you will receive as our thank you the exclusive Now Playing Child's Play retrospective series. Hello. 
Now playing the Texas Chainsaw Massacre series is edited by Jay and Arnie. Boys, you never should have been doing this. Now playing is not affiliated with New Line Cinema, Canon Films, Columbia Pictures, or Platinum Dunes. The Texas Chainsaw Massacre is the intellectual property of its copyright and trademark holders, and no infringement is intended. I'll speak plain. Saves time. Now playing is a Venganza Media production, copyright 2010. Brazos. Brazos. Yippee! Starring Jordana Brewster, Taylor Handley, Doira Baird, Matthew Boner. <laughs> I'm five. <laughs> I actually misread it. I actually thought it said Boner, but it's Boner. <laughs> I mean, sure, they could have said Arlie Ermy wasn't dead and, you know. I think they should have gone to space. <laughs> yeah, they could have done uh, Uber Ermy. I'm, I'm the one who brought the point. You're siding with me. Because I'm telling you what's going on. I'm sorry. They felt as much like siblings to me as Franklin and Sally. Who are Franklin and Sally? Oh, right. right. (laughs) Um, We're we're doing a Texas Chainsaw Massacre retrospective, you know. Yes. Referencing the original. I gotcha. I gotcha.